Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. For those of you who have been listening for a while, you've heard me introduce many women now as a result of a connection with my cousin, Emily, who was a guest on episode 10. And as you may have heard me say many times already, Emily just seems to know a million women who not only are amazing, but who are more than willing to share their life stories with us. And we have another one of those amazing women with us tonight. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. And as always, before we start into your story, I'd love to just ask you to introduce yourself to the listeners a little bit about who you are and what your life is like today, and also how you know Emily. Yeah, for sure. Well, Emily and I know each other through Noonday Collection, which is, you know, a little passion, I think, thing of mine with fair trade accessories. And she's just so fun. So love that connection. I am in um, right outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota. I grew up here and I live here with my husband and I have four girls. So I say I manage emotions um, on a daily basis. We all are very emotional in this house. <laughs> uh, I, my oldest is 14 and then 11, 8, and 5. And so I have two in the preteen teenager realm. And, you know, we just cry for no reason. And that's kind of my life. And then we do have a dog and, and the dog is a boy. So somehow that grounds something. I'm not even sure. So, yeah, I... On top of being a mom to four girls and really super supportive husband, um, I run a nonprofit that fights human trafficking. So that's kind of taken over my life the last almost nine years. So that's that's what I do. First of all, I think, yes, any parent of multiple daughters could probably put emotional manager as an honorary PhD. Yes, (laughs) right? Yes, Take a certificate. I, I'm i here for it. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes, absolutely. I don't. My best friend is uh, one of, well, there, she's one of 10 kids, but there are seven daughters and you just, oh, it, yeah, I know. Emotional management. Yes. So many emotions. They're good. We, you know, emotions are good and we need to feel the feelings. And when we're processing, that's, you know, it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. Well, yeah. you know, to your point, we need to feel the feelings and mm-hmm. I know there are a lot of feelings in your story that God has written for you thus far. I'm very excited to dive in and have you share all of those twists and turns and ups and downs and all of all of the different feelings with us. So with that, Stephanie, would you please share your life story with us and tell us all about your feelings in the process? Oh, that sounds good. I'm grateful for the opportunity. So the nonprofit that I run is called Stories Foundation. So I believe really passionately and strongly about sharing our story and how when we share our stories, then we can, I, I think, change the stories around us. I think a lot of change can happen when we sit and we share story together. And so I'm I'm honored to get to share. And my story starts, you know, really sweetly. I have great parents. I grew up in a in a really safe Christian home and environment. My dad did youth ministry my whole entire life. He just actually retired two years ago from youth ministry. And so grew up just always wanting to be at church. 
my mom tells stories about, you know, me wanting it to be vacation Bible school all summer long. I just loved church and God and friends and all those things. But and so then when I was 10 years old, uh, I went to Bible camp with a friend. And I remember just being very like I knew all the things I was a very typical like church girl. And I knew all the things I was very smart, knew all the answers to all the Bible things. And I was at that camp. And uh, for the first time in my young little life, my 10 years of life, I it just hit me what Jesus did for me on the cross that he gave his life for me. And I saw how I was mean to my siblings. I'm the oldest of four kids. I saw how I was mean to my siblings. And I saw how I you know, was disrespectful to my mom or thought mean things about her in my head. I just was so confronted with my sin at such a young age that I just started crying. And I, I do feel big feelings in my life. And even back then at 10, I felt big feelings about what Jesus did for me on the cross. And, and just thought, in my little 10 year old mind at that, at that point, you know, if Jesus gave his life for me, what other option is there, but for me to give my life for him. And that really was a turning point in my life. Looking back, it was a very real moment. And, and from then on, just really wanted to live my life to know and to serve Christ and really, really define me from that moment on. So, so that was my beginnings, I guess. And it's interesting when you, look back on your beginnings from where you are currently and you see how God is weaving your story, I think. And from there in junior high and high school, started to do a lot of mission work. My church traveled to Mexico quite a few times and Guatemala. And my heart was just really opened up to connecting with people who knew Christ in different cultures and seeing what God was doing in other places. And my my vision for God got really big, I think, during that time in my life. I saw him do a lot of a lot of things within me, giving me opportunities to share about him, even within my high school. And my faith just really grew a lot as a young person. And, and that really set the foundation, I think, for for my future. And I, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for for that and and have a real passion, I think, for for teenagers and for them to to choose to follow God at a young age, because I think it, it matters. Um, so after high school, didn't know what I was going to do for college. I was going to go to this one school, but it was like in the middle of nowhere, really far away from coffee and coffee is a core value for me. So that wasn't an option anymore. And, <laughs> you know, when you're 18, the, the important things in life. Um, so I realized I am actually a city girl and didn't want to be up in the woods that much and uh, didn't know what I was going to do for school and went on a missions trip uh, the year before my senior year of high school. And there was an opportunity to do short term, like a missionary training school, essentially. And I had said my whole life, if someone had asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, that I wanted to be a teacher and a missionary. And this program was you went to school for four months and you got TESOL certified so you could teach English as a second language. And then you went to one of their bases and you and you taught English and then did outreach and created friendships and, and were, did missions that way. So I looked at my mom. She was on the trip with me and she looked at me and I said, this is it. And so when I was 18, I went to missionary training school and I ended up meeting my husband there. It's actually a good story because he is nine years older than me. And I always make sure everyone knows that because now we're getting older and I don't want anyone to think I'm as old as him because I'm just not, I'm quite a bit younger. So 
he's nine years older than me. So I was 18 and he was 27, which now when I look at my 14 year old, I'm like, that was crazy. (laughs) Slightly crazy that we decided to date. And in missionary training school, we weren't allowed to date. So we were, we were friends and there was, we were a a small class. There was 13 of us. So there were 11 girls and then two guys. And one of them was Chris. And he really was the person I just connected to the most. We had the most in common. He was the one that we just were friends. We were easy friends. And I remember at the end of missionary training school, I'm, I'm kind of a direct person and I don't really mess around. And so I remember saying to him, you know, this is, you're going, he's from Canada and I'm from Minnesota. He's from the East Coast. And I said, are you, what's the deal? Are, are you going to date me or are we not going to talk anymore? Like, this is the end, like, which, which way are we going? And, and he said, well, I want to marry you. And I said, okay. And uh, he, he planned tickets, bought tickets to come meet my family. And so missionary training school is from August until December. And then he came right after Christmas that same year and met my mom and dad and my siblings and my grandparents. And, and then he went home to Canada and I took a plane to Ukraine and taught English that semester by myself in Ukraine with some really great girls, had some really great roommates there. And then I came home from Ukraine and I flew to Canada and we got engaged. I met his family and we got engaged. And then we both flew and did summer missions together, actually in Bahamas and did that the summer we were engaged and then led teams, led mission teams like youth groups and adult teams that came down to do missions in Bahamas, which everybody likes to say, oh, poor you, you did missions in Bahamas. And it is the most beautiful place, I will say. And uh, it's very segregated and and poor in a lot of parts. So we did that. And then we came back to Minnesota and we got married. So I, I came at home after that summer in Bahamas, came home and started planning our wedding. And we got married on New Year's Eve. And it was a really great party. I wouldn't recommend anyone getting married on New Year's Eve again, because how do you ever celebrate your anniversary? I don't know, but it was it was real good the first time. <laughs> you know, it's good all the time, but it was a good party. And then we flew to Canada and had a reception. And then we flew to Ukraine and we lived in Ukraine for the first couple years of our marriage. And I think... There's so much good about that for us. A lot of people were concerned, but we were alone, just the two of us. We had a a base, but it was a small base of people. And we really were just together all the time. And we were each other's friends. And we spent that, that beginning years of my marriage where I think a lot of people can struggle, just really having good friendship because we needed to rely on each other. I do ha- I do remember one time though we had a big fight. I have no idea what we thought about. And I had brought a Costco size bag of chocolate chips with me from home because they don't have chocolate chips in Ukraine. And I remember sitting by the window just eating them by the handful and crying because I was so alone. So you know we still were newlyweds, but mostly it was a really good foundation for our marriage. And we've always done ministry together. And I think that has been sweet for our marriage too, is just to, to have beyond per- like have mission together and purpose and to be friends. So that's how we ended up together. And Amy, our oldest, we got 
pregnant with her when we were in Ukraine. And I remember thinking, feeling like it was time for us to have a baby. And I said something to Chris. I said, I think it's time for us to have a baby. And he said, he's very responsible. He said, well, we shouldn't, we should wait until we're back in the States and we have insurance. We had canceled our insurance because it didn't help us in Ukraine anyways. And it was a lot of money. And so he said, we should just wait till we're back in the States and we have insurance. That sounded very responsible. So I said, okay, but I just knew it was time. And sure enough, like two, three months later, we were pregnant, not on purpose, but God knew, I think, and came home pregnant. We had Amy here in Minnesota, but then we went and did Hurricane Katrina relief work in New Orleans when I was pregnant with her. And then after she was born, also, we were in New Orleans with her. Could you paint us a picture of what it was like? I mean, for so many people listening, Katrina brings back memories. Mm -hmm. For most people, that's memories of news reports. Mm-hmm. Obviously, for some people, that's memories of well, actually living through it, right? And mm-hmm. maybe some that actually then went to help. But I, w- I would say the majority of listeners only know it by the, the news media, you know, and, and it's all over the news like crazy. It's all you hear about. And then all of a sudden, when, you know, the next story comes up, you you don't. And I know that for the people who suffered and for the people who were helping, it's it wasn't something that just ended when the news coverage ended. Mm-hmm. So, and especially being, you know, young and kind of, you know, newly married and pregnant, like, what did that look like for you as a as a young wife and pregnant mom and serving and just, yeah, paint the picture for yeah. us a little bit. That's a good question. It's so good to remember. <laughs> so good to remember. So when Katrina happened, we were in Ukraine. And I remember watching the news reports like everybody else. And I just knew we were going to end up there. And our missions organization we were with, sure enough, they were going to set up a temporary base there to bring teams in to help with the cleanup. So when we went there, I was, yeah, brand new pregnant and really sick. So personally, my memory is throwing up all the time, not being able to keep food down, just very, very sick. And I was sick with Amy all the way through like the first five months of her being in my belly, which was when we were doing the relief work in in New Orleans. And actually we lived in Baton Rouge in a church, in the back room of a church on a really great air mattress is where I would sleep with, with awesome air conditioning. And then we had teams come and I cooked three meals a day for the teams that would come. And we were, Baton Rouge was two hours from New Orleans. So we would leave at like, well, we would have breakfast at five and then leave at like six and then drive into the city. And I couldn't gut houses because I was pregnant and it, there's mold and, you know, manual labor and all of those things. And so, uh, but I would drive in and we would pack lunches and I would either go just be outside with the team and, and do that. Or I would get to go with, we worked with the Episcopalian church in New Orleans a lot. And I would go with the deacons and go to hand out food in the worst hit areas of New Orleans. And I think what God really taught me during those times is that kind of what I said earlier that, you know, we think that we have to do big things with our lives. And I know when people hear my story, they think, oh, you've done, you know, crazy things. And you know, a lot of people look at me and be like, oh, my story is not as, you know, I don't know, whatever big as that, or even what we're, I'm trying to do now with the nonprofit that I run, it's it's big. 
But uh, what I've learned in my life is that our stories are made up of, of a bunch of really small things. And it's the small things that are the big things and that matter. And I really learned about the value of of sharing story when we were in New Orleans, of listening to people's stories of loss and heartache and giving them value just through listening and through praying and through bottles of cold water and little cans of Vienna sausages, you know, and I can just still picture those people, like their eyes when they're sharing their story and, and the loss and the devastation in New Orleans and, and all of the Gulf Coast. We spent some time in, in other places in Louisiana also. It was so horrific and so devastating and really impacted me to know too that I think at least in my culture I grew up in and, you know, in America, we have this idea that to serve overseas gives you more of a badge of honor, or at least that's what I thought. I don't, I'm not going to blame anyone else for giving me that idea. I think I maybe just came up with it on my own, <laughs> that if you go to Africa or someplace, right, like you're, I don't know, you get a better medal or something. And uh, I think what I really learned serving in New Orleans and, and then in Iowa too with flood relief and doing disaster relief is that People everywhere need to be seen and valued and loved. And there's no, it, I don't know, experiences are experiences and stories are stories. And they're not meant to be put on a pedestal. They just are. And there's value and, and joy in serving wherever you are. And we can serve everywhere. And there's always opportunity. So that was a really... It was a very impactful time in my life, for sure, doing relief work. And then having, leaving my mom, because I came, we came home to have Amy. So we were here for like, she's my oldest. So we were here for, I don't know, for maybe four or five months. And then we went back with a three-month-old to New Orleans, back oh. to do more flood relief. And we actually lived in the city that summer. And so I had my little baby in this, you know, torn apart city and she was my buddy and we we would go grocery shopping and we cooked we cooked for teams and so when you lead mission teams you talk to the group leaders and you plan the ministry and you go out to to sites and really the work in New Orleans was the flood had risen up New Orleans is set in a bowl so the essentially the levees broke and the waters just rushed in and it filled the city like a bowl so all the houses had been filled with water. And then when the waters receded from the storm, there was nowhere for that water to go because it just sat in the bowl, which was the city. And so this, this water sat in the, in all the, these homes. It, there was a small, small part of the city that was built on high ground. The rest of the city is built under, under water, essentially. And the water sat in the homes. And so what happened in the heat is the mold just took over and, like the fridges hadn't been cleaned out. I mean, it's like real nasty. The people who went and did flood relief work down in, in the Gulf and especially in New Orleans, it's just nasty work because it's it's disgusting. And then every house had a a number on it, a couple numbers that would tell you how many people were found there dead or alive. I mean, it's very heavy. It was very, very heavy. But that's what we did. And that's we we took care of teams who came down to do that work and met some really amazing people and and had really life changing experiences about watching people serve and watching people who that was their community, but they were helping their neighbors before they even helped themselves. I mean, it really was a beautiful 
I think lesson on, on how we can come together as human beings. So yeah, so I was, I was New Orleans. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. and especially when so often, I don't know, we're, we're, we feel very discouraged and deflated by how humans treat each other. It's, especially now. Yeah. yeah it's, mm-hmm. I don't know, it puts a little bit of faith back in humanity when you see something like that. And when you watch how crisis and tragedy can bring out the best in people, it doesn't always have to bring out the worst in people. And from what you're describing, I can only just imagine what that experience would have would have been like. I, I mean, I, I can't even, I really, I can't imagine with a three month old and trying to, you know, raise a baby and, and serve and do missionary work, do it all kind of all at once. But if God calls you to it, he'll provide. And I know he's done that for many chapters in your life. And so at this point, you have served both overseas and kind of in, in your own backyard in the sense of mm-hmm. your, your own country. And your time of service is just so nowhere near done. Neither <laughs> is your story of parenthood. So take us now through kind of the next chapters of both service and growing your family. Yeah. So after New Orleans, that second year, we came back home to Minnesota and we were kind of starting to feel like we were going to be done being doing full-time missions. We had always kind of known it wasn't going to be forever and we were feeling like we wanted to be home and by family. So we were living in Minneapolis, but we were heading, we were taking trips to Iowa because there was flooding in Iowa and we got pregnant and this is a part of my story I don't talk about a lot, but we we went on a trip to take a team to Iowa to do flood relief work. So gut houses. On the way home from that trip, I started bleeding, and we knew I was pregnant, and that was that was my first really experience with grief. I think I really had a a sweet childhood, and I had I'm I'm kind of a look ahead, don't look back kind of girl. I just really wanted to serve the Lord and just followed him. I didn't really think twice about doing what he asked me to do. It was just, I take such joy in it. And it was an adventure, you know, I was newly married and had a beautiful baby and we were on an adventure and there were hard things in there, like, you know, not having money and all those kind of things. But it was mostly really a sweet time with the Lord. But when we lost that baby, that was really, really devastating. And and I think just leaning leaning into that a little bit and starting to learn about how you deal with grief and how the world doesn't deal with grief. Well, I think that's a another big part of my story that I was encountering a lot of grief and a lot of people in pain. And then I was in pain. And, and you know, our world doesn't do well with that. Our American culture and even our Christian culture doesn't do well with, with grief and with pain. But God was really gracious to us and we got pregnant really soon after, really soon after we lost that baby. And that was our Olivia. So she came into the world in 2009. And right when we were transitioning from being missionaries to trying to live this American dream existence, she was just a joy. We bought our first home in 2009. Same. It was a really sweet time in life. I felt really grateful for everything that we had. And we just had our little family. Chris was working at our church and then also in childcare. He's always done children something of some sort. We still didn't have a lot of money. That's a theme definitely in my life. 
but felt really content with what we had and really grateful. But also, I am a dreamer and I always wanted to serve the Lord in in big ways in my mind. And so I was trying to, you know, come up with all these ways of how can we make money and serve Jesus and, you know, build this life I, I imagined in my head and really was frustrated and spending money we didn't have on ideas that weren't working and came to a place where I was starting to feel really frustrated. And there are some hard things happening at church with Chris's work and his other job was hard and just not a lot of money and really feeling frustrated. I was working also in before and after school care. So just kind of a, a hard, a harder life as we're having little babies and and being married. And that's kind of where we were at when I learned about human trafficking. The other thing too, is we experienced a year before we were able to get pregnant with Eden, who was our third. So we had Amy in 2006. And then Olivia was 2009. And then we we started to try for Eden and she she did not, we did not get pregnant for a year. And so just a year two of wondering if we were going to have any more children, I had always wanted four or five kids and it hadn't been hard getting pregnant with Amy. And then we did have that loss where we got pregnant really quick with Liv. So really just kind of struggling with the Lord, like, what are you doing? Is this our life? And what are we going to do with our life? And what are we going to do for work? And nothing, none of this is long-term and kind of trying to find our way and our, and our purpose. And I started to feel behind a lot of my friends because I hadn't gone to college. And so what, what is, what does that look like for me? How am I supposed to contribute to the world? I had a lot of shame actually around not going to college and really struggled with feeling like I didn't fit in. I, I would say I'm a recovering people pleaser. That's very much, I don't know if it's being a pastor's kid or, or what, but I really wanted people to like me. I wanted people to think I was a good job. And so a lot of that was kind of tied up all in that money and who am I and what am I going to do and how am I going to contribute to the world and and all of those things. And so we had just become pregnant with Eden and really started to feel restless about where we were in life. And that's what brought me to this moment with the Lord where I just kind of gave up and surrendered and said, I'm done trying to make the life I think I'm supposed to have. And I'm going to trust you again, just to lead us and to guide us and to provide for us. And, and it was really that moment of taking all my frustration and my wondering and dissatisfaction and surrendering it to Jesus. And, and it was out of that, that this calling to fight human trafficking was really born not very long after that. When I learned about human trafficking, I was, just on this road trip with my parents. My mom was reading a book she got free on her Kindle out loud while we were driving to Michigan. And it was about about slavery and human trafficking. And I had no idea that we had that kind of slavery, really slavery in our world today. And it shook me. It shook me. And I you know, as you can see from my story, tragedy wasn't new to me. Ukraine is very oppressed place. It's even in recent years, there's been so much oppression that's happens there and the, a lot of corruption within the government. So I'd experienced that. And then with flood relief, I'd seen what natural disaster and even in New Orleans, there's a lot of political things that 
that happened to cause all that destruction there. But with human trafficking, what really hit me was that it's a human on human crime. It's one individual seeing the vulnerability in another one and exploiting it. And it just struck me in this, in this way where it just gripped my heart. And I said to God, I remember in the car, I said, this is not okay. Something needs to be done. And I swear he said to me, yeah, what are you going to do about that? And knowing nothing, being very naive, my mom and I, we had followed a pastor in Washington, D.C. called Mark. His name is Mark Batterson. And he had started a coffee shop where he gave all his money away to missions. And we had no money. And we like to drink coffee. And so we thought, well, we could start a coffee shop and then give our, give money to fight human trafficking. We thought that would just be a really great idea. And really in that moment, I'm kind of a act first, think later. So that really does define my life. And I, um, <laughs> so that, so I, that's a caveat and there's pluses and minuses to that. It's, yeah. I giggle because there's a phrase in our family where, you know, normally the phrase is ready, aim, fire. And we definitely have Mm -hmm. family members where we call them the ready, fire, aim family members. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 100% that's (laughs) me. And so, you know, bless my little heart back then. I, we got to the hotel that night and I called my husband and I said, it's like a whole, (laughs) it's a whole story. So my, my dad is, has also done real estate along with youth ministry. And my mom is a dreamer like me. And so we're talking about how we need to do something about fighting human trafficking. This is all on this road trip on the way to this wedding. And so what happens when you suck in the car with your parents for a lot of hours. And my mom says, Mark, we can rent out our house and get income to pay off our debt. And we'll live with Steph and Chris. This is my mom. So she'll still live with me. And my dad goes, well, no, that actually won't work because we're a little upside down in our mortgage because that was right after the crash, the housing crash in 2008-2009. He's like, so we can't make any money off our house. But Steph and Chris, they bought their house um, right after the market crashed. And so we got a really great deal on our house. And so we, all of a sudden, my dad was like, Steph, you could rent out your house and you could make money and you could live with us. And you know, you could pay down your debt and you could pay us a little bit of rent and we could pay down our debt. Cause our whole idea was if we could get out of debt, then we can help start this coffee shop. We can help fight human trafficking. And so I get to the hotel and I call my husband, Chris, and I say, I think we're supposed to move out of our house and rent it out and make money. And the money we make, we're supposed to pay down our debt and we're, we should live in my parents' basement. And my husband, bless his heart, he's such a supportive man. He's like, okay, he said that to me. I can't even believe he did. He said, okay, let's do it. And that really was the beginning of this anti-trafficking journey was we we did. We came home in that fall. We moved out of our house. And as the story goes, we ended up renting our house to a family who needed a place to stay. And it really didn't make us any money at all. But I think once again, God was saying, are you willing to help the vulnerable right here in your own, in your own community of people that you know and who are close to you? And so we moved out of our house. We moved into my parents' basement and this family that really needed a home moved into our home. And then we ended up having Eden while we were living with my mom and dad in their basement. And 
when we were living with my parents, that's really where that this idea about having a cafe to fight human trafficking really was birthed was around my parents' kitchen table and that extra time that we spent living with them. I just, I guess to be encouraging to people following Jesus, it really isn't boring, but it does take risk and sacrifice. And I wouldn't change anything about my story, but there were a lot of hard things. But during that season of living with my mom and dad, it was sweet too, because we had these two sweet little girls who got to spend extra time with their nanny and poppy. And and then we had a baby, you know, and brought a baby home to our little bedroom in my parents' basement. And and that was sweet to be with my parents. And and this dream of of fighting human trafficking was born and and has had a lot of impact because of that time. And we used our resources to help somebody in need. And that was a journey and it was also a lesson because I think now when I look at the work I do, that's really what I ask people to do. I ask them to consider how they can use what they have to help somebody else. And there's no way I could do that if I hadn't hadn't really done it myself. What I have to offer the world is my voice. I've always been a pretty good communicator. So I started to educate myself about human trafficking. I just had no idea. And I think, you know, we can learn about things and feel so overwhelmed and like we want to do something and not know what to do. And I, that was very much me. I mean, I took action right away, but then here I am in my parents' basement and there were moments for sure where I said to my mom, are we really going to do this? Because I changed my life. It wasn't so cut and dry even then because we really didn't know what we were doing. And so as I began to learn about trafficking, I, I just began to talk about it with people. And what I didn't realize when I first, first, first learned is that people didn't know about it. People, I thought I was behind, you know, the game. I thought people for sure knew about modern day slavery and human trafficking. And what I learned is back then in 2012, 2013, people didn't know. And so we started planning events and conferences. And I started just talking to everybody about trafficking and exploitation and pornography. And you can imagine how popular that made me. So I became that that whole people pleasing thing that I had God started to really work on that in me because it's not really talking about human trafficking, especially back then and shining a light on sexual addiction and kind of the dark side of our culture doesn't make you super popular at the dinner table or at church on Sunday morning. And, and that was a that was a new journey for me, definitely. But I pressed on because God had laid hold of me and he had places in my lap. And with anti-trafficking work, we say, once you know, you can't unknow. The more I learn, the more I realize this is a horrific problem and it affects all of us and it's in our communities and it's hurting so many people. And that's really the motivation of that has kept me going. And even more than that, I think throughout my whole life, I really just want people to know Jesus the way I do. I just, ever since I was a little girl, I've just loved him so much since that moment at camp when I was 10. And he, he really is my, he's my true, my true husband, right? Like Chris is an amazing man. And I'm so grateful for the gift of him in my life. But, but Jesus is my love and I've just loved him so much for so long. I want people to know him like I do. And I think that's my true motivation for the work I do is 
that we have an enemy and he has us in bondage. And whether that's physical or spiritual or mental or emotional or through addiction of some kind or fear, it keeps us away from the freedom that we have, we can have in Christ. And I want people to know that freedom. And so that really was very motivating for me back then and, and was a continuing of why I did mission work and just kind of my motivation all the way through. So what's hard about following Jesus is, like I said, it's not comfortable and it's not easy. And then you have to be refined. And who wants to be refined? And not me, that is for sure. And I didn't want to back then either. But we chose to pursue becoming a nonprofit. So in 2012, 2013, 2014, we did events, we did conferences and speaking. And then it got to the point where like, we God told us to start this coffee shop cafe, we need to pursue it. And so we decided to become a nonprofit and start to pursue the paperwork for that. And we got pregnant again. And I'd had you know, three healthy baby girls. My pregnancies always went really smoothly, except for that one miscarriage that I had really early on before Olivia. So there was no reason to be concerned and decided to go with a midwife this time because that felt like the cool thing to do. I really don't have any other reason for it. And I went in for my 20 week ultrasound with this baby and I brought my girls in because they had never got to see an ultrasound before and we thought this will be fun and we're all sitting in the ultrasound room and the ultrasound tech looks at me and she just shakes her head and says you should have the girls leave and so Chris took the girls out and I had lost my baby my baby had died in my womb and so I went that day to the hospital and I was induced and I labored and I delivered a 20-week-old baby stillbirth And that's a really, really hard part of my story. I think I have a lot of compassion for moms who can't have babies or moms who have lost babies, because I think, at least for me, that's the most heart-wrenching thing I've ever experienced is holding my baby in my hands, not alive. And I think what is beautiful about grief is that We don't have to have experienced the same kind of grief to have empathy with each other. I think once you have experienced loss or have grieved something and you've leaned into that and you've allowed your grief to change you for the better, then you can, you can mourn with those who mourn because you know how it feels to mourn. And that's another part of this whole sharing story that when we come across people who have hard, horrible, horrific, heartbreaking things in their stories. And we all do on some level. If we have lived our story, if we've accepted the story that has been given to us, if we've leaned into it, if we've leaned into grief, if we've leaned into the hard things or the good things, and we've said our story matters to the world, then we can go to other people's story from this place and and give value to their story too. Whereas if we ignore the things in our story that are hard or painful, or if we minimize the things in our story that are good, we can't go to other people's stories and give them value and say, you know, you're, you're, you have hard things in your story and I'm so sorry, or you have good things in your story and they're so beautiful. I think it's so valuable that we see the, 
the value in the stories that each and every one of us have, because then we can go and share a story with each other and see value in the stories around us. Obviously, I could not agree with you more as the <laughs> host of the Story Night Ministry. And I am so glad you circled back to that point that you made at the beginning of when we share our stories, we have the opportunity to impact other people's stories. To pull back the curtain and be so transparent about something so raw and so painful as experiencing a stillbirth, there are women listening who have had that experience. And for them to know that they are not alone and that somebody understands their feelings. Mm-hmm. And we started this whole thing talking about feelings. And some feelings are, you know, we, we can kind of joke about them. Oh, hormones and oh, women and all of our feelings. But certainly there's some really, there's some heaviness to feelings and emotions that we go through. We have this gifting when we suffer greatly to be able to minister to and empathize with those around us who are suffering greatly as well, but especially those who are suffering without, without hope. For yes. those of us who are suffering with hope, there's no better connection than to go sit next to that woman who's going through the same thing or something similar, but she doesn't have hope in her suffering. And that, you can offer her that hope in a way that nobody else can because when you're in such deep grief, you you don't really necessarily want to hear about hope from somebody who doesn't get it, who doesn't understand what you're suffering. Let me just pause and th- say thank you for sharing that chapter of yours mm-hmm. because I know that there's nothing easy about reliving those moments and, and picturing them again in your mind. And so I thank you for doing that because I know somebody out there needed to hear that. I think as women, and I think this is starting to change, but only recently that we have felt that we can share those parts of our stories. And I just think it's so important. It's so important for us to share the hard parts of our stories, especially in a social media world where everything is filtered, you know? Fake fake book. Fake book, exactly. Tell, so tell us now about Stories Foundation. You kind of mentioned that at the beginning, and I, I want to make sure our listeners understand that because now we're, we're kind of getting closer and closer to present day and hear more about, about the Stories Foundation and what all you're doing with the fight against human trafficking. And as we get toward the end, I want to have you share some ways that listeners might want to either just learn more or jump in and get involved. Yeah, definitely. So Stories Foundation, we say, live your story, share your story, and we'll see stories of injustice change. And which is why this is such a treat for me, because I just really believe so much in the power of story and about of each and every one of our individual stories. And I think when we think about issues of injustice, we think of them separate from us. And we can think of in issues of injustice as, some, as something the government needs to fix or churches should tackle or nonprofits can do the work with. And when we, when we talk about human trafficking, human trafficking, like I said earlier, is that personal crime. And the reasons we have human trafficking are really because 
we've allowed cultural norms to be perpetuated, like an over-sexualized culture. We have a very individualistic culture where we're not great at seeing beyond our own families. It's just how we are in America. It's not bad. It's not good. It just is. And so because of those things, there are people who are vulnerable out in our world. And vulnerabilities can be anything. It could be not having friends. It could be being insecure about your body. It could be wanting a new pair of really expensive jeans and not having the money for them. I mean, literally anything. And there are people out there who are trained to spot those vulnerabilities. And instead of coming alongside and meeting the need in a way that's genuine and helpful, they meet the need to exploit that person. And they create a relationship. And then they use that relationship to manipulate and and exploit and and coerce them into a situation where they're then sold for sex. And if all of us who have equity in our lives of healthy relationship, or we know what it is to have our vulnerabilities met in safe community, or, you know, if your experiences whatever they may be, they can, you can come alongside people who are vulnerable in a way that covers their vulnerabilities. That means that they're less likely for someone who's coming to harm them to exploit them. So that's the whole premise behind Stories Foundation is that if each and every person would see the value of their story and fighting gets injustice, and you don't have to like start a nonprofit, right? If you do want to do that, I'll help you. I'd be more than happy to, but it's really hard. So I always say I don't necessarily recommend starting a nonprofit, but you don't have to do that. All you have to do is go back to the places you already have influence and see where people are vulnerable, see where people need community, and then step in, step into those places. And that's really, that's what we say. So we give people a first kind of steps to do that through what they purchase. We have run a food truck since 2017 that spreads awareness about human trafficking. And then we use, we use the funds to fund our awareness work and support other nonprofits. And then we do catering. We have an online store and hopefully in the next couple of months, we'll break ground on Storyteller Cafe, which will be a place in the community that will provide awareness. We'll give people an opportunity to take first steps in doing something through what they purchase and through learning. And then the income generated will provide jobs and housing for those vulnerable and those who have been trafficked and exploited. So that vision from 2012, I think we're really close to becoming a reality. I still have a lot of money that needs to be raised. I'm waiting for God to rain it down from heaven, I think actually, but, but we are, we have land and we have all the pieces in place to open a give back cafe that, that will engage people in the fight against injustice and against human trafficking. So that's Stories Foundation. I think something I really learned is that anything good comes out of hard things. And we kind of talked about how, you know, we need to be authentic, I think, in our world. And I, I sometimes struggle with how do you share your story without depressing people, you know, like you want to be authentic, but also you don't only want to talk about hard things. But the reality is, I think for people who really want to do work that makes a difference, it will probably probably be born out of hard things in your life. And that for sure is definitely my story. I 
shared about losing our baby, Isla, was our baby's name that we lost. And then right after that, my Gigi, my grandma, she was diagnosed with cancer and passed really fast. And then right after that, my mom got cancer and she shouldn't have survived. It was non-smoker lung cancer, but she did. She's still with us. And I'm very, very grateful. It's a miracle, but we had to walk through that. That was really, really hard. And all that was really, really hard. And then in the middle of all of that, we got pregnant with our rainbow baby, Isabella, and she was a gift. And so what I always like to say is when we look at our life stories, it's not, it's never just happy or sad, right? When we, it's like a painting, I think. And a painting is beautiful when there's the dark colors and the light colors all mixed in together. And that's our, that's our stories. Those, that's our life. It's, it's the happy and the sad. And, and then our impact is born out of that. And so Isabella has been just a joy. And I love all my daughters equally. I do not play favorites. And there is something special about a baby that comes after so much pain and suffering. And Ella is just a joy. And she really has kind of grown up with stories. She was, I was pregnant with her when we raised, we did a crowdfund campaign for the food truck. So we raised $32,000 in 30 days to purchase a food truck to fight human trafficking. And um, she was born right in that craziness. And she was a baby when we were launching this baby business of a food truck that was the stepping stone for what we hope to do soon, which is the cafe. So I just, I guess to encourage people that your life is, it's supposed to have all those things in it. It's supposed to have hard things and happy things and sad things and joyful things, and they can mix together and we can hold joy and pain and and impact and sorrow and all of it in in our lives together and it all goes together and it really does make a beautiful story. I love the image of the painting and I just, yeah could not agree more. I mean, as a as somebody who does paint, I often will be at the tail end of a painting and thinking there needs to be more contrast. I need to make that that part darker and that part lighter and then it makes just everything pops and you just I really, love that really see it <laughs> so I thoroughly agree with you on that one and as we wrap up I wanted to give you an opportunity to share with listeners where they can maybe find more information maybe they have never heard of human trafficking before maybe they don't realize it's something that's going on in their backyard. And maybe some of them are going, well, how can I help you with your particular fundraiser? Is there something, you know, that they can do for you specifically, which will then end up helping the fight against human trafficking. And, and listeners will have all of this in the episode notes. So you can click on anything from there. But yeah, Stephanie, if you don't mind just kind of sharing a little bit about what next step somebody could take who maybe maybe she wants to learn more or get involved? Definitely. So I always say that awareness is action. So if you find yourself overwhelmed by the thought of human trafficking, or if you have a lot of fear when it comes to human trafficking, I want to encourage you, you can reach out, you can go to storiesfoundation.org. And we actually have an online curriculum you can take to understand why we have trafficking and what it is. 
And I think once we understand it, it's easier for us to understand our part in fighting against it. So that's always a really great first step. And then if you want to be more involved in the work that we're doing, I I do awareness events. I do awareness events all the time. If you want to get a group together and you want to discuss human trafficking in a group of your friends, I'd love to do that. We could do it virtually for sure. So that's always an option. And we're, we're fundraising. So, you know, if you are independently wealthy, if you're a millionaire, <laughs> if you know someone who's a millionaire, <laughs> or if you want to become a monthly supporter uh, and join with your resources, or if you have, I don't know, I think we all have our experiences for a reason. And maybe something you've experienced can help us as we launch a give back business. And then in the future, we already have a location in Wisconsin that wants to franchise the cafe. And so maybe there's supposed to be a storyteller cafe in your community. You never know. So reach out. I love to chat with you more if you're burdened to do more about fighting against human trafficking. My door is always open and I'd love to love to connect. So storiesfoundation.org and storytellercafemn.org are the websites. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for sharing. Thank you for opening up your, your story, for sharing your painting, the, the light parts and the dark parts and the contrast and everything in between. As we close, I would love to ask you to pray for the listeners, mm-hmm. listeners who maybe identified with a part of your story or are feeling energized by something you said or just, I don't know, feeling like you understand them. I would love to. Dear Jesus, I'm just so thankful for your faithfulness and your grace and your mercy. And I thank you that before the foundations of the world, you had a plan for our lives. You knew our story. And I just think of each and every woman listening. And Lord, I just pray that right now she sees the immense value in the story that you've written with her life. I thank you that you're the redeemer of hard things done to us or hard things that maybe we've chosen or hard things that have happened outside of our will, Lord. And Jesus, if there are those hard things that have come up, I pray that that we can surrender those to you. I thank you that we can. And I pray that, that we'll make those choices to give those back to you because you can make them so beautiful. And I think the beauty can be found in when we share our stories with each other. I pray for the women listening that you will surround them in authentic community where they can share their story. I pray that we can be connected together through all the parts of our story, the hard and the good and the happy and the sad. Lord, I just pray that you will show us how our experiences and everything you've given us, how they are an asset to the world around us. I pray you will open our eyes to the vulnerable around us. I pray that we will know that small things are the big things and that it's important just to take a first step. Jesus, I just believe so much in all of us joining together to go out into the world and to shine a light and to share love. And I think that happens through our stories. And so I pray that you will just encourage the hearts of those listening um, that we can come together and choose to not be divided, but united um, because our common humanity matters and there's value and dignity and worth there. And I pray that can be the focus, Lord. 
I thank you for what you're doing in this world. Even when there's so much ugly, there's so much good. There's so much good in our stories and we get to share them and we get to show, show you through that Lord. So I'm thankful. We love you. Thank you for my story. It's hard for me to share, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you again, Stephanie. Thank you for taking time and for sharing your story with us and everything that you've got going on. And, and I hope listeners will join me in just continuing to pray for you and all that you're doing and finding ways to uh, make a difference. And um, we serve a God that nothing is too big for him. And I love what you said, where you learn about something that's so horrifying and you turn to God and say, why aren't you doing something? And why, why, how how could this be happening? And we hear him say, I I, I did do something. I created you. Mm-hmm. And what are you going to do? How are you going to yeah. make a difference? So thank you mm-hmm. again for being here. Thank you for sharing your story. And listeners, thank you so much for joining us. We hope that this story made a difference in your story and that you come back next time to hear our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.